Before history is written, it's played. Before it's frozen in time, it's fought one shift at a time. Before it's etched in silver, it's carved in ice. What happens next will last forever. The Stanley Cup Final on ABC and ESPN Plus begins Saturday. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. With threats to our nation waiting around every corner, adaptability is more important than ever. When conditions change without notice, quick strategic thinking is crucial. And with obstacles consistently impending, determination is essential in overcoming them. It's this willingness, decisiveness, and resilience that sets Marines apart. With our fighting spirit, we don't just fight battles, we win them. Marines are the constant our nation counts on to fight the unknown. And through adaptable problem solving, we do just that. Learn more at Marines.com. Hello, welcome to the Snooker Scene Podcast. I'm Dave Hendon. This week I talk to Paul Collier. He's one of the game's leading referees. He's refereed two world finals and plenty more besides. Paul also works as one of World Snooker's tournament directors and he explains in this podcast how he came to be a referee, talks about his career and tells us exactly what a tournament director actually does. Paul, tell us how you discovered this great sport of snooker. Um, it goes back to when I was about about five years of age, I suppose. My parents ran a social club in Newport um, and we had a snooker table in it. It was called the Pioneer Club, which unfortunately shut down quite recently. Um, but I can remember on a Sunday afternoon, my, uh, my uncle Stephen used to work behind the bar with my dad and licensing doors were different then, so everywhere used to close at two o'clock on a Sunday. And they'd go and have a game of snooker while my mother and my auntie cooked dinner upstairs so I just used to watch them knocking balls about and I don't think either of them ever made a 30 break in their lives but you know they used to enjoy it and it was just something I'd always been around mm. and did you play yourself? I started playing when I was about 13 mm. uh, again with my dad at a different social club um, and I fell in love with the game really I just I really enjoyed it um, it was a good excuse to get out of the house I spent a bit of time with my dad uh, it was a a nice club, the Mandy Cons Club in Newport, good crowd of boys. I learned a lot from them and had a great time. Mm. But at, so, at some young age, because a lot of sort of kids growing up, they think I want to be a snooker player. But at some young age, you thought, no, I want to be a referee. Well, actually, I did want to be a player, right. and uh, we we had a, a coach in Newport, a guy called Vic Jones. That anybody that ever went to Pondings mm. will remember. Vic, he died a few years ago, unfortunately. But I went to Vic for a bit of coaching, and. Um, he was a coach and a ref and part of his deal was he would only coach people if you learned to be a referee yeah. he said that you deserve to learn the rules um, you know, because it's a big part of, of the sport you're playing um, and I just found I really enjoyed it when I did learn the rules um, and it, it was a bit easier I got on very well with Darren Morgan at the time Darren had just won the World Amateur mm. Championship and I used to practice with Darren a little bit and I started travelling with Darren and refing some of his matches when he was getting to the final stages of Pro-Ams and I just found it was nice to always be involved at the end because the playing wasn't going the way I wanted mm. it to. But it should um, be said, you were very young at this point. Yeah, oh yeah, I was 15 when mm. I passed my first yeah. referees exam. So, um, yeah, which I, I don't think anybody else did it. I think a lot of the people that Vic coached, he was coaching the older players because they would learn the rules. A lot of the youngsters didn't want to. There was a very good female player at the time, still is a very good female player, Sharon Dixon. Um, and Sharon and I were about the same age. There might be a few months between us. 
Um, and she didn't want to do the ref inside of it, she just wanted to play, mm. and she was a better player than I was anyway. Mm. Um, but no, I really stuck with the refing and I really enjoyed it. Mm. So, how did you then, how long was it then until you started refing sort of professional matches? Uh, it was a bit of a gap. I was doing a lot of amateur stuff in, in the Welsh Association because we had a great Welsh amateur, you know, a, a great tour then, a lot of tournaments. So, every weekend there was something on, and I did that up until I was about 19. Then, of course, I started work, um, you know, and it, I didn't have as much free time. But then when the game went open in um, 1991, um, I received an invitation from the Professional Referees Association through a few of the Welsh refs that I work with. Um, and I'd met John Williams a few times, I think he was chairman at the time. Um, and yeah, I, I took the invitation up. So I was made a member, I think, in the December, either November or December uh, of 1991. And then in 1992, they offered me two months at Blackpool in the, the first ever Norbrecht qualifying stint. Because that's the thing, when the game went open, obviously there were so many more matches, so many more players, they needed more officials, didn't they? Oh, absolutely. I mean, we used to have, uh, what was it, 22 tables, three sessions a day. So we'd have had probably 37, 38 referees on site every day for the best part of three months so it needed a lot of us because nobody could commit to that sort of time spell a lot of people were working I was lucky I was between jobs there was a club I'd been involved with that closed uh, in May and then I got offered that job in the June which was perfect timing for me really um, but yeah that, that was a great time and, and <laughs> I fell on I had some good fortune on the back of somebody else's misfortune because I'd done the first two months and was doing really well well, I thought I was, um, you know, but there were a lot of experienced referees and they were all getting the third month mm. and the new refs. It was sort of, well, thank you very much. We'll see you next season. And unfortunately, Langanley had a stroke right. uh, about four days before the end of that first stint. And um, obviously they had a little meeting between John Street and John Williams and a couple of others. And they came to me and asked me to stay on for the extra month. So mm. that, that was where it all really started. Mm. Refereeing in those days, it was a little bit of a closed shop. I mean, if you watched Snook on telly, it was the same four or five people who yeah. tended to referee the matches. Here, you're this sort of new young referee. How did the sort of older refs take to you? Did they sort of take you under their wing or were some of them a little bit maybe suspicious of you? Yeah, Joe Williams, Len, um, Alan and, and John Smythe at the time, mm. you know, they, they were all very, very helpful, as were some of the other refs that mm. maybe weren't in that group at the time. Laurie Annandale, was, he was very helpful Colin Brinder you yeah. know, they, they were yeah. great they helped me a lot John Street and I had a wonderful respect for John Street I still think he's one of, technically one of the best referees I've ever seen um, but for some reason we didn't really hit it off and I don't ever know what it was and I wish sort of resolved it before he died but mm. um, he, he didn't do me any harm but he wasn't particularly helpful mm. towards me but you know the other refs were, were great and um, and they always have been you know I still keep in touch with John Williams a bit now I spoke to Alan Chamberlain the other day it was his birthday yeah. um, sadly you know we've lost a few of the others mm. but no they were all good to me in my career I have to be fair but did you in those days did you, think, did you see refereeing as a career or was it just something you enjoyed doing no I didn't um, during that stint in Blackpool in 1992 I picked up a job with Alston Elliott mm. who were a computer graphic scoring company uh, and they were doing uh, during a, I think it was three days off was all we had in that Blackpool stint but although we were off they brought the top 16 players in and they resurrected Pop Black mm. it was called Pop Black Timeframe mm. and they needed somebody who knew a little bit about computers um, and also knew the rules to do the scoring so through the tournament director at the time Ian Yates they approached me and said look you know we know you've only got these three days off but we really need somebody and would you like to do it and the, the pay was quite handy mm. um, so I agreed to do it and then that ended up leading to a full time job I worked mm. for them for nine years so mm. as long as part of my deal with Austin Elliott was they wanted my refereeing experience uh, and knowledge so I said well as long as I can do I think at the time you had to do two weeks a year minimum to maintain your membership of the Professional Referees Association so they used to give me best part of a month to do different tournaments um, and, and I just thought that that would be the way it would continue mm. you know but 
things changed Wilson it came to me nine years after I started um, and offered me a full time job and I thought perhaps it's time for a change and mm. it was something I'd always wanted so I took a gamble Yeah, well let's just go back to Alston Elliott because they're kind of unsung heroes really of the TV coverage aren't they you know mm. people when you see the pot success on the screen and all that stuff and all, all the stats basically that you see are generated by the by the guys in the truck. That's right. Yeah, we, we started all that. There was BBC at the time were looking for a new edge. Um, Alston Elliott had started. I think snooker was their first event, but they were promised doing all the cricket coverage on the back of it because the B were the main yeah. broadcasters of cricket back then. And cricket is just it's ninety nine percent statistically driven. Yeah, yeah. Um, and they tried to adapt some of that into snooker, and it was difficult at the time because a lot of the old school didn't believe in the stats. It was, if you scored more points, you won. Mm. Um, you know, but we talked to a few people around. And because I was collating a lot of the statistics at the time, I think that gave it a little bit of credibility. A few of the players were partly on my side because they knew at least I had a, you know, yeah. a bit of knowledge of it. Um, and yeah, and that was where it went. And, and they delivered a very good product. They were a great company to work for. Um, very professional. Really liked what they did. Um, and we were at that time a change. You know, widescreen TVs yeah. had suddenly come about. Digital TV had yeah. come in. Um, graphics machines to put things on screen were a lot better. Mm. Um, it, it was just it was the right place at the right time I think mm. and you got to do the cricket as well yeah I did the cricket I was never a big cricket fan mm. um, I, I still watch cricket now I prefer one day um, <laughs> it used to be really tedious for me at a test match I mean don't get me wrong I appreciated the work but you turn up at a test match they always started on Thursdays back in those days <laughs> um, you know when you'd get to Saturday afternoon knowing it was a draw thinking mm. why have I got to stay here for another <laughs> two and a half days but um, you know, it was it was one of those things. I mean, I, I did enjoy. It. I did a few tours. I went to India. Um, I did turn down a West Indies tour, but that was because it clashed with something else. Um, I went out to Sri Lanka. Uh, I went to Malaysia, Kuala Lumpur, um, and, and of course all around the domestic season because snooker and cricket back then worked hand in hand. Because when we finished snooker yep. the first week of May, yeah. the cricket had kicked in. Yeah. They finished towards the end of August, and we started again mm. in September. So mm. the seasons were great for mm. as, as regards a full-time job, anyway. Mm. But like you say, then you came back to refereeing, and you pretty quickly established yourself as one of the top referees. And I guess some of the older referees you mentioned earlier were kind of retiring or just just sort of you know kind of getting too old to do it. Really, yeah, it was around that time. Um, it was quite political as well because it was at the time where um, surely not. Well, yeah, <laughs> yeah, for a change. <laughs> No, it, it was when, uh, I think it was 110 Sport, and yeah. they announced they were looking to set up a rival tour, and I think World Snooker, maybe not a knee-jerk reaction, it was probably the right thing at the time, but they said, look, we need to get some referees on contract, that if this does happen, yeah. um, you know, we can still try and have the best product. So they started offering a few contracts that we didn't think would ever come around. And I think the main reason I got offered one was because in the build-up, in four or five years previous to that, I'd done all the Premier League stuff. Yeah. So although I'd only done my two or three weeks with World Snooker, mm. I'd been on television with Premier League, mm. I'd kept in touch with all the players, I was at every event. Obviously I was watching more Snooker than anybody, I would mm. think, the fact that I was scoring nearly every match. Mm. Um, so that, that was how it all came about. You know. Let's talk about a sort of referee's day, because I think obviously again a lot of people who watch Snooker on the telly, they kind of see you there in the middle, but they've no no reason to know what your preparation is or, or what you do. So for example, say you're refing at the, at the Crucible 10 in the morning, you know, what time do you get up and what's your little routine before the match starts? Generally get up around 8 o'clock. Um, Sheffield's quite a good one for us because we stay at a hotel that's a, a nice 15-minute walk from the venue, so that's quite a nice start in the morning. So I get up around 8. I'm not um, a big one for early mornings and breakfast, but the Crucible, we all tend to have a different routine, so have a bit of breakfast, walk in. Um, our written rule is that you're always on-site, dressed and ready to work 40 minutes before your schedule start time. Um, so by 9.20 we're, we're out, you know, we, we've got the balls out, we're checking the table, 
Um, a lot of people don't know this, but because of the table heaters now and all the experiments they've done with kicks and things in the past, uh, obviously there's oil in the cloth and oil on the balls from when they're brand new. So we now don't put the balls on the table until 30 minutes before mm. because that can cause little heat spots and mm. all these different things. So yeah, get the balls on the table for, for 9.30 if it's a 10 o'clock start. Go and find your players, just let them know that you're refereeing them. Very often with television we don't start dead on 10 o'clock. So it might be a 10.03 or a 10.04, so at least you let the players know they've got those extra few minutes. Um, find your marker, have a chat. Make sure he's got your bottle of water out and wait to go. Right, and in the interval, will you just take it easy, or is any more? Duties? You don't get much time no. in the intervals. That's the thing. I mean, they're fifteen-minute breaks, which the players go off and have fifteen minutes. But we tend to stay at the table because we take the balls off the table. We wait for the table fit to service the table. Then we set the balls back up, and that generally takes six or seven minutes. So you've only got another five minutes then before you've got to find your players ready to come back out. But it gives you time to go to the toilet, and you know you just basically keep yourself to yourself if you start getting involved in conversations with people it yeah. can destroy your con- you know your concentration yeah. which is always the biggest thing I mean to any referees listening to this the you know the only advice I ever give anybody is, is don't lose concentration because mm. it's very easy to start concentrating mm. but it's very tough to get it back once you've lost it mm. so and after the match do you have any any duties handing the match sheet or anything like that and that's it is it no not really at the crucible and and most big events you've got a marker doing it all for you so that's down to them so all you do is put the balls back in the box make sure everybody's happy Uh, if there's been any incidents you might write a report if you've issued a warning or anything Um, you know we always record those on paper um, but then, no, you just go off and get yourself ready for your next session. Mm. OK, well, you, as you said, you refereed the Premier League, which was, was high-profile, uh, live TV and all the rest of it, but 2004, you got the chance to referee the World Final. Mm. I think you were the youngest still pl- person to do yeah, it. Yeah. I won't be for much longer, I don't think, but yeah, still. <laughs> but, I mean, that must have been a great honour. Oh, it was fantastic, and, and I wasn't expecting it. I mm. thought it might have been another three or four years, in all honesty. Um, and back then, um, I was told the previous October which is unheard of now, you know, we don't know until after Christmas, mm. you know, well, you know yeah. until the same year, effectively. Um, but I was told, and I had to keep it quiet for a month, and that, <laughs> that, that, that was tough. Mm. Um, I phoned my mother and told her, because I was allowed to, yeah. and, and uh, uh, I told my partner at the time, who's, mm. who's now my wife, Karen, mm. you know, she yeah. knew about it. But um, no, we kept it quiet until the end of January, I think, which is mm. the normal sort of time mm. there when they announce it. But mm. yeah, I, I, I couldn't wait, you know. I, I was a bit concerned that maybe I hadn't done enough at the Crucible, because mm. I'd actually, I think I'm the only referee to have never done a one table Okay. prior to doing the final yeah. normally you get a semi-final and the following year you yeah. get the final yeah. uh, that didn't happen in my case I'm not sure what the reason was for that mm. but um, no I, I loved every second of it I can still remember certain shots from that final right. you know certain things mm. I felt and, and and the way it all was mm. so, yeah. but did, were you nervous though going out there because I mean it, it, the, the attention is on you as well isn't it particularly in a match like that if you make a mistake in a normal match people will kind of forgive it but if you do it in the final the world championship they won't <laughs> no, I, I was absolutely fine up until about a minute before the mm. intros because I'm stood backstage and um, I'm listening to everything that's going on and it was Alan Hughes was our MC at the mm. time and all the build-up, I mean, as you know, there's a lot happens in the yeah. arena that you might not see yeah. on television, yeah. it all looks seamless but there's a yeah. lot going on and uh, my, my, one of my heroes in the game, one of my idols was always Steve Davis, he was, you know, obviously he was the, he was the main man when I sure. started watching and, and I've always got on really well with Steve and he recorded a link at the far side of the Crucible and he made the effort to come right round the back of the crucible just to come and see me mm. and, and basically said look you know you've earned this just go out Brilliant. and do a job and, and I was fine until he did that to me <laughs> <laughs> and at that point I basically crumbled yeah. but um, yeah. 
Yeah, and I still get it now, you know, I think when the day comes when I'm not a little bit nervous, if I can't get focused for a match, then that will be the time to say, OK, I've had a good career, enough's enough, but, you know, it's, hopefully that's a good few years away, yeah. But you mentioned concentration, and that's obviously the big thing. I mean, we all know there are certain matches that can be very kind of scrappy, and if you're just watching, even if you're commentating, you can sort of switch off, but you cannot afford to do that. So how do referees keep that sort of iron concentration? Is it just through experience? I think it is just experience, because you can't shut off from everything because you are responsible for what happens in the crowd. You know, you have to pick out people who look like they might be a problem um, and, you know, try and deal with them before they're a problem. It, very often you might see us between frames gone call when the security guy's down because we've seen something that could be an issue. Um, you know, it's, I think prevention is, is a very good cure. Um, you know, once problems start, then they tend to escalate. So you have to keep your eye on all those things, but you've got to be focused on the match as well. I think it helps me because I, you know, I don't play much now. But I mean, I did get to a level where I made century breaks, and you know, I, I played a lot of amateur stuff. Um, so I tend to follow the game, but you also have to follow the game differently as a referee because, you know, as a player you're looking sort of two, three shots ahead. Mm. As a referee, you're only concerned with the current shot and the next one. Sure. You can't go too far ahead because you can talk yourself out of things. Mm. But, um, but positioning is so important, isn't it, in, in refereeing? Particularly, I watched you. I can't remember what the tournament was. I may have been the champion of champions. You refereed Ronnie O'Sullivan, mm. and obviously, you know, we know how quick Ronnie is, particularly when he's break building. And I was just—I was actually just watching you, and you were like making sure you were getting in position, not to put him off, not to be in his way. But you have to anticipate that, don't you? You yes, have to absolutely. understand what he's doing, and that's where knowledge of the game comes in. Yeah, but I think any player trying to anticipate—sorry, uh, any referee trying to anticipate what Ronnie O'Sullivan's mm. going to do—you're um, going to get yourself in trouble. There's a lot of players can't do mm. it, you know, because Ronnie just—I um, think he's got this first sight. He sees things, and it, it's a brilliant talent to have. Basically, with Ronnie, I mean, we've had chats all, all the years I've known him. Um, and you know he's been very critical of some referees but he's had cause to be with yeah. some of them as well the majority of times I don't think he has had reason to but you know he has had it with a few but he's got this opinion that he doesn't care if you're stood right in front of him as long as you stand still yeah. now we don't like that as referees we'd never try <laughs> and stand in front of a player always get behind the eye line but I think with Ronnie is as long as you know what he expects then it's like you say it's very tough top of the table getting around and getting back and forth and I think he's about the only player that I let the player go first Right. because I ref a lot of billiards and billiard yeah. players always want the yeah. referee in to yeah. do their bit yeah. um, but with Ronnie I'll always let him walk because I know that once he's got out of my way he's happy for me to do what I need to do sure um, so I, I don't referee any player differently other than I think that's a bit of a concession I make with him. Mm-hmm. Um, OK, so you refereed, as you say, the World Final 2004. I think I'm right in saying after that you took a bit of a break then, at some point. Yeah, I did. I mean, yeah. I said it was down to politics, the reason I came in, and it was politics that made me leave in the end. We had a very, well, I'll say it, it was a, a shocking administration. Mm-hmm. The way the game was run was appalling. Um, I was an employee at the time. I had two pay cuts enforced on me in one season. Um, and it just got to the point that I, I could make a living but I didn't enjoy what I was doing anymore. I still loved the game, um, I just didn't like working for the administration that we had and I tried always to resolve it and they just weren't listening. Uh, so in the end I very unfortunately gave, you know, I resigned. Uh, I was a full time referee I'd got where I'd worked very hard to get. And I called it a day in 2005. Mm. Now I don't regret for one minute leaving um, because I felt I, you know, I held my principles and I, I did what was right at the time. Um, but then I think one of the best days of my life was when I got the phone call from Nigel Oldfield who's now operations yeah. uh, director to say that you know Barry was in mm. uh, he was going to come back and do a bit of work for Barry and Barry had told him to ring me and see if I wanted to come back you know and that was a fantastic time so yeah and things have changed a lot as we know in the sport since since Barry took over and one thing that's changed for you is you don't just referee now you're also 
tournament director, and that's another um, job title that people hear but maybe don't really understand what goes on. So what does a tournament director do? Uh, well, tournament director, it, it's a different role, really, to, to what it used to be. When I started in 1992, we had a, a lady called Anne Yates, yeah. who everybody remembers. Yeah. I mean, she was a, an amazing tournament director. I think everybody respected her players and, and referees. A lot of people um, were scared of her, I think. I think that was part of the reason, yeah. I mean, I was going to say, if you got on the wrong side of her, you knew about it, but she was very, very fair, and she, you know, she... She gave me my chance, really. She, you know, it was down to her that that initial conversation with Alston Elliott happened and all that. But her job back then was really speaking. She had um, a press officer and an assistant TD, and they did the bulk of the, of the dirty work, if you like. And Anne was sort of a figurehead. I'm in charge. I will deal with everything, and she did it very, very well. Well, that's all changed now over the years. Anne left. Uh, Mike Gamley was involved. He was sort of the assistant TD under. Under Anne, um, and he's very much got a lot of Anne's ways about it, you know, which is very good. Um, but now we're a lot more hands on. A tournament director will turn up two, maybe three days before an event. Um, all the scoring equipment and the computers that you you may not see, but you certainly see the benefit of if you're watching it with live scores and things. We actually install all that equipment. You know, we put it in, we cable it, um, we do all the administration side of things, we allocate the matches, we do the referees' rotors. Um, there's a heck of a lot of admin uh, even down to maybe six months before an event even events like the Crucible where we seem to have been going forever mm. uh, we still go for a planning meter every year we still look at every venue in case things have changed uh, there's a lot of notes and a lot of paperwork you know, because these are big events and they have to run properly so the TD's role is it, it's two things it, it's getting all the preparation right and it's getting the final stages right mm. um, and some of it's pretty frenzied I mean if you look at the Home Nations events where you've got eight tables play all day long yeah. you know you've got to keep on top of it if matches are overrunning you've got to reallocate tables it, it's, it's full on isn't it it's full on and it, it all started I don't think many people could have coped with the home nations if we hadn't done the European tour events mm. because they were sort of the model for that um, where we played the same format but we did it in three days mm. you yeah. know, at least now we play these in seven yeah. um, but of course we have more tables but you know you, you have a good format you have a structure that works I know some matches go on two hours later than they were mm. scheduled for but I think a lot of players are starting to realise now that you know a not before time just means that is the earliest it's not when you're mm. going to get on yeah. um, you know and we try and get matches turned around as quick as we can and I think players appreciate it a lot more now mm. when they work with us but yeah it can be chaos I mean you can suddenly have a spell of say an hour and a half where very little has happened mm. and then you get five matches come off within two minutes mm. of each other so that there's a lot to do mm. But as long as you stay on top of it. But those events, we work very well, whether it's there's a team of us, really. There's myself, Martin Clark, and Mike Ganley, and our full-time tournament directors. And we've got Gary Wilkinson, who's worked with us for a long time as an ATD. We've also got Brendan Moore now is coming into that role, and Jan Verhaas is doing a little bit. So between us, we'll always pair up for those events. So one of us will tend to just sit in a corner behind a computer doing the allocations, liaising with television, making sure everyone knows what's happening. And then the other one will be out face-to-face -face with the players, dealing with any issues, making sure the referees know where they're going. Mm. So although they're very long days, uh, you know, they can be 16, 17 hour days, and you might get three or four of them in a row, um, that they work okay. Mm. So it's, yeah. You're at the shop in there, aren't you? Because snooker is not without people that want to complain or have their say about things, and you've mm. got players, tournaments, you've got the fellow, your fellow officials, you've got the broadcasters, lots of people, sponsors to keep happy. It's not always easy to keep everyone happy, is it? No, no not at all. And I mean, snooker's one of those sports where everybody knows everything, yeah. or they think they do. <laughs> uh, you've only got to pick up social media for a day sure. and you understand that. So, <laughs> No, it's, you know, from our point of view, we, we stay out of social media as much as possible. I mean, I've got my accounts, you know, where I just put a little bit on to let people know what I'm doing. Um, a lot of, like, Mike Ganley, Martin Clark, they won't go anywhere near social mm. media, uh, which is probably a good thing, mm. 
because if they saw half the stuff I read, it, you know, it would be chaos. Yeah. Um, but yeah, there, there, there's a lot going on. Um, you know, you do have issues. Players obviously have problems. A lot of them are justified. Some of them maybe not so. Mm. But it's your job to listen to them and, and try and deal with them. Mm. Some of the most mundane comments you have can actually lead to some of the biggest changes. You know, which is is good for everybody. You know, we, we're always thinking. That's one thing Barry's got. Is if you go to Barry with an idea yeah. or a suggestion. I mean, obviously think about it first because if if it is nonsense, he'll tell you. Um, you know, but if if he thinks something will work, he will put things in place to, to give it a try. Mm. So, yeah, it's you know a lot of things related to conditions. You know, players will say, "Well, that table played shocking." You know, and it's, but you, you might know that if it had rained heavy the night before, and maybe the heating was turned off for a few hours, and you understand these things, it doesn't make it right. Mm. Um, you know, but you, if there's things you can resolve, you'll deal with them. Mm. You pacify the players, and you just try and make things happen. Mm. One thing though both refereeing and uh, tournament directing you're away a lot aren't you I mean there's a lot of time on the road I know you say you divide it up between you but there's still a lot of tournaments to cover and you, you, you sort of have to spend a lot of time away from home which is which is hard for everyone I guess yeah I was, funny enough I finished doing my um, my accounts last night because I've just finished the self-employed so I've done the last year's books and uh, I looked and it was actually 207 nights in hotels right. in, a, you know, in a calendar <laughs> yeah. year which is a long time yeah. away because um, I only recently got married last year we've been together for 17 years sure. we only married last year <laughs> Um, but luckily I think she knows that that's the way it is mm. you know it is a long time away I won't say I enjoy being away from home but I, I tolerate it I'm mm. used to it you know it's great now you can have video phone calls because I've sure. got you know, a couple of grandchildren and things yeah. and I can yeah. keep in touch with them and, yeah. and that's a good side of it mm. also what's good is we have a, a very good talk you know there's a, I get on well with a lot of players mm. I get on well with a lot of referees I get on well with a few of the security guys a lot of the broadcasters, you know, the TV people, a lot of the journalists. Mm. We are, I won't say we're a family, but we're all quite close. Yeah. So that makes things a lot easier as well. Yeah. A family like in The Godfather. <laughs> well, yeah, it, it can be. Yeah. <laughs> well, like you say, when you came back um, and you became established as, again, one of the top refs, and you got to do the world final again in 2016. Yeah. Mark Selby and Ding Wee. What was that like, sort of 12 years on? Were, did, you probably felt less nervous, did you? Or how, can you remember how you felt? I think I felt a bit less nervous. Yeah. I was as aware of it, but I was probably a little bit more confident because I felt that over those years I'd become a better referee than I was in 2004. Um, certainly from an experience point of view, you know, I'd learned a lot more things. Um, that I'd seen a lot more situations. There's a lot more things that I'd already dealt with because you, a lot of people, a lot of amateur referees particularly, watch professional referees on television and they say, oh, if that had happened to me, I would have done mm -hmm. that. Well, you don't know what you would have done until mm -hmm. you're out there. Um, you know, when we all think we all have the rules knowledge to back up our decisions, whichever decision we make, but you actually don't know. I mean, I had the incident with uh, Ronnie and Ali Carter at the Crucible this year. Yeah. You know, where actually Barry said, oh, "Well, I handled it. I didn't actually know what I was doing." <laughs> you know, you just you see a situation, you see two players who are obviously fired up, um, and I didn't really know how to deal with it. And it was just, look, you know, come on, lads, let's just play snooker. That was, to me, that was the obvious thing to do, and it worked. Um, you know, but you, you don't know what you do in these situations. Sure. But when I did that final, you know, when I went out to do that, I was, I was a lot more confident. I was nervous, mm. um, but I enjoyed it. Good, good. Two mundane questions. Firstly, what's in your pocket as a referee? You know, we see you in the big blazer. What have you actually got in that pocket? Two ball markers and a coin. Okay. That's it. Yeah. A pen in the inside pocket, just in case. Is it a lucky coin? Some, I know some refs have lucky coins. No, I'm actually gutted. I, I did have a lucky coin and I've lost it. I was given. Wasn't that lucky then? <laughs> no, well, it should have been. It should have been. Um, Colin Brindid, who, you know, we, we lost yeah. 11 or 12 years ago now, Colin, he, he was very good to me and he gave me a coin. Mm. Um, it was um, a Kennedy silver American half dollar. Mm. And I really, it was in that spell where I had a break and although I was 
considered using it for Premier League. So, so I'm hoping one day it turns up. And I'm sure it's in the house somewhere. Yeah. But there's a great story with a lucky coin, if, if you've got a minute. Yeah. Um, I was in Blackpool in my first ever year in 92, and uh, Len Ganley was stood next to me. And we'd, we used to, all, used to queue up in a tunnel, so there'd be 22 tables, so there'd be 44 players and 22 referees all lined up in this area. It was more like a crowd queue than going to a football match, but we were all there. So I tossed the coin um, with the two players, and Len said, what's that? I said, what do you mean, what's that? He said, well, what coin have you got there? I said, it's 10 pence piece. No, 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 Paul. He said, we, we don't use mundane coins. He said, we... Um, as professional referees, we all have a coin. I tell you what, he said, I'll, I'll give you a coin. I'll bring one in tonight for you. And he was living in Blackpool at the time. So he came back that evening and good to his word, Lenny went there and he said, you have that. And when you do your first world final with that coin, he said, you remember your uncle Len gave it to you. And I'll never forget that. Mm. And I went, oh, Len, that's fantastic. Thank you. And it was um, a Churchill half crown. It was a huge coin. It was a bit like if you see a five pound coin now, it's about that size. And it was in a little gift box. And I used it for must have been five days before I realised that it had the Queen's head on one side and Churchill's head on the other. <laughs> so it was only Len could ever have given a referee a double-headed coin to toss with for the rest of his career. We, we could do a whole podcast on Len, couldn't we? It was oh, an unbelievable, yeah. unbelievable character. Yeah. But I have still got that coin, but obviously I don't use it. So. <laughs> <laughs> the other question, and this like seems really kind of mundane, but we see quite often in snooker, after a couple of frames, a player will go to the toilet. Hmm. Referees never have that chance. Now, obviously, you're not drinking water every other shot, but there must be times when you think, oh, I need to go. You can. If you need to go, you can go. Right. Um, you know, uh, some of the female referees, I think, you know, <laughs> obviously, we've, you know, we've got a different makeup and, mm. and they tend to go a little bit more than mm. we do. But if you need to go, you need to go. It's as no. simple as that. It's like we always said with the players. We think some players were going a little bit too often. They weren't going to the toilet. They were going out and composing sure. themselves, and yeah. that isn't what it's all about. Mm. But, you know, you can't stop somebody going to the toilet if they need to go. We, we encourage people not to do it unless you have to. Mm. But um, I think over the years, I've just become sort of immune to it now I can sort of just shut myself off yeah. you know and, and, I, and I'm alright normally yeah. I've, once I've been in my whole career it's the 27th season now on the main tour and once I've had to go during a match right. that's all so. okay. not, not a bad record no um, anyone listening to this who maybe fancies giving refereeing a go what kind of don't do it <laughs> <laughs> I was going to say what, what, what advice would you give them I mean obviously you start don't you well the, the traditional path is you start your local league so there's, I think there's three certificates you, you pass that's right Yeah, you start with a class three or it was a grade C as it was when I took it but class three class two and a class one anybody can take a class three uh, just get in touch with your local association snooker association they'll put you in touch with whoever the coordinating referee is um, take your exam it's quite a basic exam it's only a, a, like a limited rules knowledge um, and then they will encourage you to do more refereeing with more experienced referees and obviously pick up more of the trade. Mm. After you've been two years as, as a Class 3, uh, if your examiner thinks that you're good enough, uh, he will ask you, do you want to do a Class 2? You can then do that one, and then I think it's still five years before you can do a Class 1. Mm. We've always joked that you can actually become a doctor quicker than you can become a, a Class 1 snooker referee, which right. is a bit unusual, but right. it's all down to the experience mm. of the job, really. And learn the rules. I mean, it seems an obvious thing to say, but there are cer certain things that never happen, but then they happen. Like, you Absolutely. Need to know. There's yeah. so many things that I am never, ever going to see on a mm. snooker table, but I have to know what to do when those things arrive, uh, when they arise. So that, that, that's the big thing, and it's remembering all those different things. So even now, I mean, I still read, I get on an aeroplane, I'll still read the rule book. You know, I mean, because you, you can get through it in an hour, mm. you know, paying attention. Mm. Um, still do it just because it, it jogs little memories mm. all the time. But all, the only advice I give to anybody is if you want to do it, do it, but do it for the right reasons. Mm. We don't make fortunes. Um, there are 
maybe five of us on the whole tour who can actually make a living at it. Um, you know, so don't expect it to lead to a career. If you enjoy it, do it and, and do as many matches as you can. And that's the advice I give. I think if I hadn't done Blackpool in, in the day, um, you know, I did two years of that, I wouldn't be the referee I am now because the referees coming in, um, you know, some of the, the B band referees that we have that we're trying to promote to the A band to get the big level of work. There's just not enough work for them. Mm. You know, we'd like them to do more, but we've got to share it out, mm. and, and that's the tough part. Mm. But whereas when you went to Blackpool and you could do two months of two matches a day, seven days a week, sure. best of nines, yeah. you were wearing dress suits in the evenings, and we even brushed and ironed our own tables back then. Oh, right? yeah. You know, so that that really was the way to learn. Mm. In terms of your career, I mean, you've refereed everything that you can do. What are your sort of future ambitions? Just to carry on, carry on doing it, I guess. As long as I enjoy it the way I do now, I'm going to carry it. I actually think I enjoy it more now than I did when I came back. We were saying that um, when I just had the contract negotiation to come as a full-time TD. So whatever you do, don't take the refing off me because I really am enjoying it. Mm. Um, I think Jan is at the point now, you know, just chatting to Jan socially. Mm. I think sort of if he didn't referee a lot more, it wouldn't bother him. He's enjoying it, you know, he loves the role. Uh, but he really enjoys being involved in the, um, certainly we're rewriting a few of the, not rewriting the rule, but we're not changing many rules, but we're making it easier to understand and easier to translate into other languages. So that's been a project I'm going for almost two years, and Jan has loved that, he's put so much work into it. Um, you know, and then he likes the training side of it, and he's a little bit older than me, and he's had a bad back for a long time, so he finds standing for a long time a bit difficult I've gone the other way I like having all the other roles but I'm really enjoying reffing at the moment so yeah. you know I've got a good spell coming up now because obviously we're talking now the championship league and I managed to do all four of these this year so I've got 16 days of that I'm reffing at the Masters this year I'm actually reffing at the Welsh Open for the first time for several years so that I'm looking forward to that um, we haven't allocated anybody for the World Championships yet but you know I think I'd get a, f a few days there at least so yeah, I'm I'm still really really enjoying it. I, I I love being involved, and you know I, I'm I'm very lucky that I get paid to do something that I get so much pleasure out of. That's good to hear. And as Rob Walker says about the referees, we can't do it without them. They're a very integral part of the snooker circuit. It's been great to chat to you, Paul. Thanks a lot. Cheers, Dave. Cheers. Sports Social Podcast Network. Step into the world of power, loyalty, and luck. I'm gonna make him an offer he can't refuse. With family cannolis and spins mean everything now you want to get mixed up in the family business introducing the godfather at chabacasino.com test your luck in the shadowy world of the godfather slot someday i will call upon you to do a service for me play the godfather now at chabacasino.com welcome to the family no purchase necessary vgw group void where prohibited by law 18 plus terms and conditions apply it's time for today's lucky land horoscope with victoria cash Life's gotten mundane, so shake up the daily routine and be adventurous with a trip to Lucky Land. You know what they say, your chance to win starts with a spin. So go to LuckyLandSlots.com to play over 100 social casino-style games for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Get lucky today at LuckyLandSlots.com. Available to players in the U.S., excluding Washington and Michigan. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply.